A man went to see the doctor. His voice trembling, his hands were shaking uncontrollably. He told the doctor, every time, every night when I get to bed, I think there's somebody underneath the bed. I get scared. And so therefore, I keep a torchlight with me when I go to bed. And when I think there's someone underneath the bed, I shout with a loud voice and then I shine the torchlight underneath the bed. Nobody's there. And when I climb back to my bed and I close my eyes, it starts all over again. Doctor, there's something wrong with me. Now the doctor responded, you have come to the right person. Come see me twice a week in a year's time. I guarantee you, you'll be healed. How much do you charge? The man asked. $10 registration. $100 per visit, twice a week. Total of one year. Now the man thought for a while, and then he said, okay, let me think about it, and then he left. Six months later, the doctor saw the man at the supermarket. This time, the man was bubbling with joy and confidence, and so the doctor asked, why didn't you return to see me about those fears you were having? Well, 100 bucks twice a week for a year is a lot of money. And so the next day, I shared the problem with my barber. I went for a haircut, I told my barber, and he cured me. How much? The doctor asked. 10 bucks. All in. The man continued, I was so happy to have saved all that money that I went to buy a brand new TV set. Now, this aroused the doctor's curiosity and he asked the man, Really? May I ask, how did your barber cure you? The man smiled and then he replied, He told me to go and buy a saw. Buy a saw and saw off the legs of my bed. <laughs> and then there's no place for anyone to hide underneath my bed. Now, we laugh at the simple solution, but is it the answer to the man's problem? This story reminds me, reminds me of a picture that someone pasted or posted on Facebook. Now, this person has observed that all we need for life's problems are two things. WD-40, duct tape. Okay, if you track along with me, right? On the left, if it doesn't move but should move, Use WD-40. <laughs> this is true. My wife can attest to that. Yesterday, I was spending quite some time in my house to, to oil the windows. You know, after the haze, it's kind of jammed, so I use WD-40 and really, it works. Right? So, on the left, if it doesn't move, but it should move, WD-40. On the right, if it should not move, and it does, use the duct tape. Tape it up. Now, there is much truth in this flowchart, let me tell you. But we all know, life is more than a flowchart. Life is more complex. Certainly, some answers are common sense. But others, we can Google. We can Google the answer. We can go to YouTube. And we can go to TED Talk to find the answers. Now, without a doubt, the Christian life is beset with problems. It is a heavy cross to bear. If you are walking closely, walking in absolute obedience to Jesus Christ, it's a heavy cross to bear. Life is more than, than just WD-40 and duct tape. But to view your mission in life, your purpose in life, 
It's merely to deal with problems in order to attain a problem-free existence. All short of the true understanding of the gospel. The Christian life, rather, is one of promise, the promise of God to make you his people. God specially handpicked a man called Abraham to establish a nation of people that God himself will call as his own, a people of God. We will have problems in life, we will deal with it, but we need to dwell on the promise. This afternoon, I want us to pay attention to the topic of God fulfilling his loving obligations the loving obligation of his promise to Abraham more than 400 years before this time. In God's timing, the Exodus marked the end of a period of oppression, a period of suffering for Abraham's descendants, and it constituted the beginning of the fulfillment of the covenant promise to Abraham that Abraham's descendants would not only occupy the promised land, but will also multiply and become a great nation. Today we will look at three chapters in Exodus 16, 17, 18. These three chapters reinforces the central truth that consistently runs through the book of Exodus, the theme of God's presence. God's presence abiding, abiding with His people as they make their journey out of Egypt into Canaan, the promised land. By all means, we deal with the problems and challenges that comes our way, but do not let your mind drift from this wonderful thought that the Christian life is one that looks beyond our problems. Look beyond our problems to God's promises. Now let us go to God in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, our time for receiving your truths for today begins right now. No human wisdom can unlock the truths so we ask God, guide us, help us, help us to appreciate the examples of men and women of faith. And you teach us how to apply these truths into our life as we seek to be a community of faith in Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. If you have your bulletin, please check along with me. God cares for us. He cares for our daily basic needs. No one can live without food and water. These are our basic needs. And God cares enough to provide. We are looking at Exodus 16. Now, the Israelites had travelled in the Sinai Desert for more than a month since they left Egypt. A desert is not on their itinerary. They are looking forward to a land that was promised to them. A land that was said to be a, a land flowing with milk and honey. And this phrase comes out from the lips of none other than God Himself. And where do you find this? Exodus chapter 3, verse 8. When God revealed Himself in the burning bush, called Moses into His assignment, God says, hey, I'll bring you, my people, into a land flowing, flowing, not just filled, but flowing with milk and honey. The, the desert is not on the itinerary, so they grumble against Moses and Aaron. Verse 2. God responded, God responded by miraculously providing bread. The word is called bread that will rain down. It will rain down from heaven. This will take care of their breakfast and lunch. For dinner and supper, God provides quail meat in the evening. 
that very evening, quail came and covered the entire camp. And in the morning, there was a layer of dew around the camp. And when the mist evaporated, what remained were thin flakes, like frost on the ground. The identity of which was never known before. No one has seen it, and no one will ever. But people ask, what is it? The substance is called manna. It was white in color, verse 31 of chapter 16, and could be cooked or prepared in different ways to relieve monotony. Now, your bulletin, I use the word impoverished. Why do I put this qualifier? A desert is a harsh environment. Scorching heat by day, sub-zero temperatures by night. Quill appearing in the evening and dew in the morning. This is not man-made. This is a divine happening. You don't get food that easily in the harsh conditions. On top of that, food to feed 1.5 to about 2 million people. This is a divine happening. Therefore, in demonstrating his power over the elements and the ability to create out of nothing, God demonstrates himself as the Lord, their God. In return, God expects the Israelites to firstly observe the Sabbath rest. And God wants them to know that their grumbling is not against Moses and Aaron, but against God. Pay attention to this. Their grumbling is not against the leaders, but against God. So the Israelites were obedient at first. They collected the portion that they need. The Bible tells us you can take as much as you want. Right? There's no lack for those who collected little or less. There's no overabundance for those who collected too much. So they were obedient. They collected the portion they need. But later on, they became greedy or perhaps insecure. And they think that, hey, they could collect more for standby. So they collect more than is required for the day in order to save for the next. And what happened? The manna cannot be kept overnight. It cannot be kept overnight. It's a shelf life. It was crawling with maggots when left overnight. But that is not all there is to this heavenly food. Because on the sixth day, on the sixth day, the Israelites are to collect two days' worth. Two days' worth of manna because the next day is Sabbath. God will not provide this manna on Sabbath because He wants His people to observe the Sabbath only on the sixth day. The manna will have a shelf life of 48 hours. This is a lesson of trust and obedience that God will provide. They, learn to, they have to learn to trust and obey that God and God alone will provide. God will provide as needed. This is an application to think about. Wait upon God and trust Him for daily provisions. Do you wait upon God? Do you trust Him for your daily provision? Or do you view that your daily resources are, are not gifts from God, but because you earn the wages to afford the necessities? Only when, only when you come to the realization that your daily resources are God's gracious gifts, and only when that happens will you not only learn to trust God, but also learn to submit to God. We move on to chapter 17. The Israelites arrived at a place called Rephidim, where the people found to their horror, there is no water. Parched from their journey, their lips were dry. They again 
complained against Moses and blamed him for taking them out of Egypt. This time around, in addition to grumbling and quarreling with Moses, all right, this time the people were so agitated, according to the text, they were about to stone Moses. They want to murder him. God, once again, was very patient with this group of grumbling people. God told Moses to take the staff. The staff with, with which Moses had struck the Nile River in uh, Exodus 7 verse 20, the same staff which Moses struck the river. With this staff of the Lord, God commanded Moses to strike a rock at the mountain of Horeb. Horeb is Mount Sinai, the region of Mount, Ma- Mount Sinai is the region of Horeb. To strike a rock, a rock at the mountain of Horeb and behold, the text tells us water flowed freely down the slope into the camp of the Israelites where they could connect it. Can you imagine? Well, the staff of God, what is this? The staff of God, Exodus 4 verse 20 and Exodus 17, what's the symbol of God's power? Alright, this is the staff of God that it, uh, Moses used to part the river, uh, part the, the, the river now. But holding it was a sign of dependence and trust in God. What I'm trying to say is that you can have a rod and just put it in the ground and we all look around. Isn't it? This is not what Moses did. Because it's a symbol of God's power and when we hold it up, it was a sign of dependence and trust in God. And so God provided for the basic need of drinking water through another divine miraculous act. Struck the rock. God can put up with the people's nonsense as we've seen in this text. God reminded them that when you grumble against God, appointed leader, you are in effect grumbling against God as far as God is concerned. And so think with me for a moment. Possible application for our lives. If you believe and trust God for your daily assistance, it means everything that happens to you is under the control of God. God is the one who ordains the things and the people. It cannot be just the things not, and not the people. God is the one who ordains the things and the people in your life. And so you ask yourself, would you gladly accept this fact? Or would you differ from this truth and see nothing wrong in antagonizing the people whom God has put in authority over you, your parents, your government, your supervisor at work, your teacher, and of course, your church? Moses named the place Massa and Meribah. Massa meaning testing, Meribah meaning quarreling. Now, would, would you do a Massa and Meribah when things do not go as you wished or when plans go awry? God fulfilled his promise to make the Israelites his own. And he did by being ever present with his people. He provides our basic needs, even in the most trying situation as seen in the Israelites' time in the harsh desert environment, we too can count on God to provide for our daily existence. God's abiding presence is with His people. First, He provides our daily basic needs to keep us alive. God's presence means more than daily provision, which we are going to find out as we look at the second point. As it turned out, the Israelites encountered an unexpected surprise attack from the Amalekites. 
Amalekites, a group of people, were descendants of Esau, Genesis 36, verse 12. Though the Israelites were huge in number, they were largely without armor of any kind and completely without experience on the battlefield. And so Moses assigned Joshua, who is mentioned here for the first time. Although Joshua must have fought courageously and competently, the battle belonged to God, who demonstrated his power through the symbolic gesture of Moses with the rod, the staff again, or what did Moses do? Holding up and lifting up the staff of God with both hands above his head. By doing so, Moses symbolized Israel's total dependence on the power of God. Just like I mentioned, if, it's the, if the power of God resides with the staff or the rod, why don't we just impale it into the ground? We go about doing our own business. No. When you raise up the staff of God over and above your heads, with both hands, symbolizes Israel's total dependence on the power of God. So when Moses raised his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. Naturally, Moses grew tired. And so the text tells us a stone was placed for Moses to sit, while Aaron and her, each man, held up an arm of Moses. The text continues to tell us that just like the miracle of providing the basic needs of food and water necessitates Moses building an altar. Similarly, God directed Moses to build an altar, but before that, he told Moses to write down this account, this account of the defeat of the Amalek on a scroll. In times to come, later on, in the history of the Old Testament, the Israelites would have to remember that God himself allowed them to prevail, not only to prevail, allowed them to prevail and conquer their enemies, the Amalekites. God clearly protected and preserved the people, His people. And God will also protect and preserve them against future enemies. Moses commemorated the victory by building an altar which he named the altar, The Lord is my banner. Yahweh Nisi. The battle belonged to God because the people belonged to God. Once again, God proved Himself faithful in protecting and preserving more than just providing His people. Think for a moment as we look at some ways we can apply this truth right now. Now, the defeat of the Amalekites displayed the power of God and God's willingness to come to the aid of His people in times of crisis. So where's the application? The application is here. God usually uses human, human beings as His channel in achieving such victory. And He did so here. God chose to use wise and skilled leaders and warriors such as Moses and Joshua who never forget that it was none other than God Himself who was fighting on their behalf. The victory belongs to God. Later on, the Apostle Paul would elaborate on this principle of God working through human agents. Many people attempt to serve God in your own strength. And in doing so, they rob God of the glory due to God because they are serving God on their own strength. 
others on the opposite. In what amounts to a cop-out, do very little to serve God and instead invoke such slogans as if anything needs to be done, God will do it himself. God's defeat of the Amalekites teaches us that God will indeed fight for us. He will. But we must stand ready to be his instruments in the battle. In whatever God, in whatever way that God chooses to use us. In serving God, there is no such thing as outsourcing. There's no such thing as outsourcing the ministry to others, presumably, presumably more free, more willing to do the job. God fulfilled his promise by being ever present with his people. How? First, he provides for their basic needs to survive in the desert. More than that, God is ever present with his people. In our insurmountable battle, as seen in the Israelites' victory over the Amalekites, God can be counted on to protect, reserve us, but to complete the truth that God is ever present with his people. We come to the third point of today's sermon. Chapter 18. Let's turn our attention to 18. Moses served not only as the direct spokesman for God, he's the direct spokesman for God, but also as the chief arbiter for the people. So his, he acts, his role is the spokesman for God and sometimes the arbiter, the judge of his people. The Israelites will bring their daily disputes, which will not surprise us because they were serial gamblers. Right? Many of us are as well. Moses will have to listen to their issues and then decide on the matter. Now the cycle lasted all day, no doubt. 1.5 to 2 million people. Day after day, prompting his father-in-law Jethro to be used by God to teach a vital principle that leadership, if it is truly to be effective, should be shared. Leadership should be shared. The rigors of travel and of camping in such a forbidding terrain as the Sinai Desert will bring disputes and quarrels which need redress. Disputes about ownership of implements, clothing, wagons, livestock, to say nothing about the quarrels and the fights between the children of different tribes as well. Now, the result was that Moses was almost completely overwhelmed by judicial matters which prevented him from giving attention to the larger concerns of government and worship that involved the nation as a whole. Jethro advised Moses, going to chapter 18, to think differently about doing things. Moses could expand his leadership base by delegating much of the decision-making to capable men from among the people. In doing so, Moses would not negate his own authority, but actually enhance it. He would still be the primary teacher of the people and routinely teach them the way of God with his many laws and regulations. Jethro's counsel for Moses was to organize the leadership into leaders over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. What is important here to take note is that the chosen leaders were to be men of unblemished character. Men of unblemished character who feared God and regarded God as the sole, the only Lord of Israel. They must be men who could be relied on and who will not give in to the lobbying of people bent on getting their own way. In short, Moses must select men of sterling character who will honour God 
and represent the people's true interests. In doing so, Moses will not only be relieved of fatigue or burnout, but he would also be training a large core of law students. He'll be training a large core of law students throughout the nation so that they might personally uphold and honour the Torah which God intended for them to follow as God's covenant people. I have a question for us right now. Think about it. Is Moses adopting a pragmatic, secular advice? Where is God? Didn't we talk about God's presence to prepare His people? It appears that Moses is learning from a pagan. Someone who is not a follower of God, that is a pagan, unbeliever. If you look at text one more time, chapter 18, it reveals that Jethro felt moved to perform the presentation of a burnt offering with Moses and Aaron and all the elders of Israel, verse 12 of chapter 18. So it will not be wrong to suggest that Jethro is a follower of God. In fact, you read chapter 18, 10 to 11. And God used Jethro to give wise counsel to Moses. Sometimes, God uses another person as an agent to speak to the leader. Remember Nathan, the prophet, who called out King David's sin of adultery and murder in 2 Samuel 12. So the advice of Jethro gave impetus to Israel's budding governing structure. They actually culminated in a triumvirate, meaning that three, okay, consisting of priesthood, king, and prophets, a triumvirate. Alongside this would be elders whose official function remains largely undefined until the New Testament. Uh, such structure gave way to even more elaborate organization under King David, who expanded the priestly service and function of the Levites. One of the reasons why churches and organizations are unable to fulfill their God-given goals is in the area of sharing the work. This quote from Abraham Lincoln, it is surprising how much you can accomplish if you don't care who gets the credit. So this is one of the reasons why churches and organizations are unable to fulfill their God-given goals because they don't share the work. But the true genius and for our attention right now is not about sharing the load. The true genius of Israel's government was its theocratic foundation. Theocratic foundation that acknowledged God as the ultimate ruler because structure alone would never ensure God's blessing. The Israelites would have to protect these structures against foreign and sinful intrusions, something that they continually fail to do so. And churches of today are not exempt from this. And so Moses had to delegate the work of judging the people to keep them walking in obedience to the commandments of God. At best, the Israelites can only obey the Torah for a while before they stumble and break it. It's a continuous back-breaking cycle of adhering to the Torah. Jesus tells us in the New Testament, He says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. He's referring to the people obeying the laws. But that's how the people in the Old Testament live up their lives. They live under the covenant of the law. The man who felt that there was something, someone hiding beneath his bed illustrated the idea that what he perceived was purely a figment of his imagination. 
saw all the licks of the bed, no place for anyone to be present. It was all about his mind playing tricks on him. Not so with the Israelites. Not so with us. God's presence was not a figment of their imagination. We saw in the text today, God's presence was not experienced in a vacuum or in a laboratory, nor encountered in an abstract or cognitive ascent. Certainly not a figment of imagination. God's people everywhere, at every era of time, Old Testament, New Testament, is assured of God's presence. Now think for a moment with me, do you really think that the Israelites thought they had packed enough for their extended journey? What resources were they lacking that only God could provide? Physically, emotionally, intellectually, spiritually. God is ever-present with His people. He provides for our basic needs. He protects and preserves us in battles that are insurmountable. And lastly, He prepares us for shouldering and sharing the burdens. Provide, protect, prepare. In our study of Exodus in the coming weeks, we will also learn that God punishes. God punishes His people as part of their experiencing the fulfillment of God's promise. So it's not merely about provision, protection, preparation. It's punishment to prepare us, to make us God's people. To a visitor, a passerby, a new believer, or someone who visits us online via the web, for the person to hear that God's ever-presence is here merely to help us appears very human-centered. The Christian faith is not much different from another religion, isn't it? If your God is here to just take care of you, it's all about us, about satisfying our needs. God is here to serve us. Is this our understanding? What is the difference? The difference lies in who is the one taking the initiative? Who is the one making the first move? It is God, not us. From the Old Testament era, God appointed human to lead his people with a shepherd's heart, filled with tender love and care for the sheep. Why? Because God himself is a shepherd with a shepherd's heart. The events and the various people whom God brought into the Israelites' lives in the Old Testament history serve to foreshadow the final event and person. The final event and person, the arrival of Jesus Christ to dwell among humanity. The advent of Jesus is a combination of God's abiding presence permanently in the people of God. God, the heavenly Father, selects Jesus the Son saves and the Holy Spirit seals. Seals us into relationship, not just on earth, but for eternity. Are you facing problems that overwhelm? At stake are your basic needs, battles, burdens that are so insurmountable. Are you struggling with living a gospel-centered life? God's abiding presence it's with His people. So let us take the few moments right now. I want to invite all of us to pray as we respond to the sermon. And after I will close. Get into, first of all, individually, offer a prayer to God to be reminded that God is ever-present in every circumstances. 
Number two, get in two or threes. Okay? To remember as a group that God will remind us, Grace Baptist Church, that the gospel is a fulfillment of God's promise to redeem a people for Himself. Let us pray in individual and in groups and then later on I'll close. encourage you to get into groups of three right now to pray. We have time. A little of a close. So get into groups of two and three to pray. Let's go to God in prayer. Who taught the sun where to stand in the morning? And who taught the ocean it can only come this far? Who showed the moon where to hide and appear only in the evening? Whose words alone can catch a falling star? All of creation testify to you, O Lord. And this life within us cries, because the very same God that spins things in orbit, you run to the weary, to the worn, and to the weak. And the same gentle hands of yours hold us when we are broken, when we are battle-hardened, battle-weakened, when we are overwhelmed with the burdens of carrying the cross. The same hands that conquer death brings us victory in life, whether on earth, or in heaven. God, we lift up these prayers to you, expecting your power and your presence to make them a very part of our lives as people, men and women, young and old, people of God. 